Well, Merry Christmas, Arbor. All right, good to see you. Great to see you. It is the season, is it not? Today we're starting a new series, and we are going to dive in quickly and take a look at Jesus' family Christmas tree, or his family tree. And, uh, and if you think your family is messed up, uh, you are in for a great, very, very big surprise. Um, to start off, what I'd like to do is I'd like to introduce you to my family. And so this right here is my family. Every year we put out a family Christmas card. How many of you guys do that? Right? This will be our family Christmas card. I'm going to come down here and I'm going to, I'm going to look at it with you. So I want to kind of give you a little bit of background. I'm going to introduce you to my family. Maybe you don't know. Uh, that's me on the left, just so that you know, on the top left. Uh, I am married to a beautiful, my beautiful bride, Davy. She's right there. We have had, uh, we've had a lot of success with our kids. That is Paisley. She is just the most creative little gal on the planet. We've got Percy. He's out of control. That's the first time he's ever smiled without screaming. Um, and then that is Montana right there. He is just, uh, he actually is our smiliest baby out of all babies we've ever had. Um, and so, uh, and then you'll probably notice that he's holding a, um, we're missing Magnolia. So we lost Magnolia a little while ago, three years ago. Um, and to represent her in all of our pictures, we have a flower, but in this time we also have her glassy baby right to the left of um, uh, Percy's head. Uh, so that's Christmas, right? And we always try to put on our best face, best look, the best way that we possibly could do it, right? We always want to show everybody that our family is doing well. I just want you to know this was the most hellish, hellish experience I have ever had in my life. I want to show it to you. We took 270 pictures to get to this sucker right here to make us look like we are in control. So here you go. This is, I'm going to walk you through it. This is, I was setting up, getting the whole thing set up right there. This is our glassy baby wall. My wife has so many glassy babies. She needs a display. So there you are. So, um, and then I needed to get the picture of like set. So I put my daughter inside of there and, uh, and had her do this. We were taking pictures. She obviously wasn't too thrilled, but I needed to get more than one so we get the, you know, the right focus in on there. So I brought the family inside of there, and it kind of got worse at that point in time. <laughs> Percy's the only one looking. I have no idea what Paisley's shooting up on right now. <laughs> My wife is obviously not thrilled. This is taking way longer than expected. And then we have this picture right here. And I just want to tell you what that look is from my wife. That look, I get it every once in a while. That is, I am done. Let's move. Let's go. So we had all the kids get dressed. When we got dressed, Percy did not want to stand there. We could not get him to stand there for the life of him. He literally screamed. And, and, and he go to the next picture. Here's the problem. You cannot yell at your kid to make them stop crying. <laughs> you have to try to trick them. You have to give them candy and you have to bribe them. And he was doing none of that. And we're yelling at him. And then, you know, we're trying to get the flower up in there. So I'm like, come on, Percy, hold the flower up. He's finally smiling. Uh, we can't get it. The next moment, you see this one right here. My wife has given it a shot and apparently is dropping Montana. <laughs> and then Montana wants the flower, right? So it finally, after 270 pictures, we get to this, right? Now, I want you to know, this is even fake. <laughs> this is Photoshop. Watch. Watch carefully. I had to adjust the smiles and the flower and everybody just to make it work so we look like we were a happy Christmas family. <laughs> so there, it was crazy. Now, families are messed up. 
my family's messed up. I know your family's messed up. Um, and we can all point to something in our past, in our childhood, in our history. And we could say back there that that messed me up. That was difficult. And so I've had many conversations over the years, sitting down knee to knee, eye to eye with people and having conversations. And a lot of times the conversation will move this direction. Will they say, I want to change, right? I've got some adjustments that I need to make in my life. I've got some things that I'd like to um, move towards or stop doing or start doing, but it always comes with a but. But the way I was raised, or but um, how, this, how we did it back then, or where I came from, or because of this, but because of this, I can't move forward. It's as if the person is saying that their past is the number one thing that is dictating their future. It's as if the person is saying that their past has a hold on them from moving into what God has for them and what God wants them to do. It's as if their past is paralyzing them um, from any hope of moving forward. And so it's saying like, what happened to me back here in my past? That's my resume. And my resume is holding my dreams in the shallow end of the pool. That's what it's doing. And so oftentimes I have this conversation and so many of us, we're looking back, we're constantly looking over our shoulder and we're using what happened to us or maybe what, um, or something that we did um, to hold us back from what God would have or God's best. Here's what I want you to know this morning. Where you come from doesn't have to determine or it doesn't determine where you're going. Where you come from doesn't determine where you are going. And some of you might think because of what happened back then, because of what I did, my choice, or because of what happened to me or what was done to me, that there is no hope for my future. And it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. And I think that is the beauty of the Jesus's family tree. And we're going to look at that today. And if you think your family tree is shady, wait till you look at his. There is hope. All right, Matthew chapter one might be the most overlooked and skimmed over, skipped over passage in the, in, in the entire Bible. Leviticus and Deuteronomy might be right in there, but this truly might be the most skipped over passage. I'd never heard a talk on it. And what I wanna do is I want to go through it together. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna read it. We're going to read the whole thing, all right? The whole genealogy of Jesus. This is, it starts with Abraham and it gets all the way down to Jesus. Now, when I say we're going to read it, I'm going to say Jonathan is going to read it because I can't pronounce half the names out of there. And so, Jonathan, would you stand up and would you read the genealogy of Jesus? Wow. Oh, I'm so glad I pawned that off on you. I, that was well done, man. Well done. I actually, if they didn't clap for you, I was going to clap for you. That was amazing. You guys, that is a lot of names, is it not? It is a whole bunch of names. That is a mess of names. But what those names represent are stories. Each one of those has a story. And if you were to look through each of those names, if you were to unpack their stories, you would see that there are a lot of flaws and there are a lot of shortcomings inside of Jesus's family tree, which I think is strategic. God's plan, right, is that there was a lot of sin in the world. And so what God needed to do is he needed to send his perfect son into a perfect family, except there was no perfect family. 
And so he worked with what he had. He had to work with who he had. And, and it might surprise you how shady his tree is, the family tree, or where he came from. But I want to look at just a few of these. And let's start with Jacob. All right, let's stop it, start at Jacob. Jacob's name is often used to introduce God himself. That's how much he's tied into the family tree. So if you were to actually introduce God up onto the stage, you would say, introducing, coming to the stage, God, the, fa- the God, the father of Abraham, the father of Isaac, and the father of Jacob. His name is that big, except it was never supposed to be that way. It was supposed to be coming to the stage, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Esau, because Jacob took that name. He was, he, he actually like took it away from Esau. He was, uh, he, he lied. He, he stole it from his brother, from his dad. He got the blessing of the birthright and his name, right? It's my name. Years ago, I asked my parents, what does my name mean? Like when I was a kid, you know, does it, is it Jacob the Valiant or is it, you know, Jacob the Brave or Jacob the Really Attractive? You know, it's got to be one of those Um, And it's not all of them combined. And so, but really, you know what it means? Jacob the deceiver. That's what my name means. That's what his name means. He is a deceiver. That's what he did. He stole a birthright. He took the birthright and somehow God still used him. Maybe you've taken, maybe you've lied. Maybe you've hurt people. I want to tell you this morning, there is hope. And apparently God uses people like you. There's Tamar. She's in the family tree. She is a scandalous woman. If you don't know what she did, she wanted to get pregnant so bad that she tricked her father-in-law into sleeping with her. She dressed up as a prostitute and tricked her father into sleeping with her. Now, maybe you're here and you've done some pretty bad things, right? Maybe not this. And things that you never want to admit or you would never admit inside of a church. You would never want to. I'm telling you, there's hope. God apparently uses people like you. Rahab, she has a nickname, doesn't she? Yeah, Rahab the prostitute. She actually was a prostitute. I'm going to hate it when we're going to get into heaven and we're going to see you. And you're like, oh, you're Rahab. Rahab the, the Hebrew woman. Great to see you, right? It's wonderful to see you. She was known as a harlot, a prostitute, a woman of the night. And maybe you have a career that you are not proud of. I just want to let you know there's hope. There truly is hope, and apparently God uses people like you. Solomon, he was a king. He was a big-time king. He was considered to be the wisest person on the the planet, but he was also a polygamist. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now, if that isn't trouble on so many levels, (laughs) right, it's obviously not wisdom. I got one wife. And I can, I'm doing my best to make sure she's happy. I'm doing my best. But to have seven, a thousand women that you need to take care of, that's crazy. Maybe you've made some unwise choices in your life, right? But there's hope. God uses people like you. Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim ascended to the throne at 18 years old. That would be like us getting like the number one score in the nation when it comes to SATs when we're 18. That would be like we got homecoming king or homecoming queen. It means that we got drafted by the NFL. We totally skipped college. We were the number one draft in the NFL. And then we became president in the next week, right? 
That's what that would be like to become king in that age. But three months later, after he became king, and three months later in 10 days, they were taken captive, and he spent the next 37 years in jail. 37 years. And after his release, Jehoiakim did not please God. He continued to do evil all the way to the point where, catch this, God cursed him. And maybe you, when you started off in life, it was very promising. You had a great promise. Then all of a sudden, you turned away from God, and now you feel like God has turned his back on you. Guess what? There's hope. Apparently, God uses people like you. Ahaz. Ahaz was a king. And, what, and actually, out of all of them, this one to me is probably like, I, I put this one on the worst. He uh, desecrated God's altar by basically installing a pagan altar inside of its place, but that's not the worst of it. What Ahaz did is he actually sacrificed his children to a pagan god. That's what he did. And maybe you're here and you have done the unthinkable. There's hope. Because apparently God uses people like you. It's as if God is saying that he wants to show everybody Every, everyone that has ever existed, the type of people whom he loves and the type of people who he chooses to use. And so check out what Matthew says, and here's where Christmas comes in. Matthew 121, it says, She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, Yahshua, because he will save his people from their sins. Friends, this is the hypothesis of the New Testament. This is exactly what this is. What's nuts about this is it sits just five verses down from the genealogy that we just read. Or let's be specific, Jonathan just read, right? Jonathan just read this. We just went through this. Five verses down, we've got this verse right here declaring the coming of the king. It's as if Matthew is trying to tell us, look up. Hey, just look up. Those people, those flawed people, those people with problems, those real people, they are exactly who I am sending my son to save. Exactly. And the beauty of this is, is God uses imperfect people to orchestrate a perfect plan. He does that all the time, does he not? He uses imperfect people to orchestrate a perfect plan. I don't know, maybe today we could start to embrace a little bit of our imperfections Instead of thinking that we have to be perfect and all cleaned up to come to church, perfect and all cleaned up to come to God, perfect and all cleaned up to come to Jesus. What if, guys, what if we actually came, as the old hymn said, just as we are? Like really actually did it. We came in and we laid down our imperfections because here's what's crazy. What's nuts about it is it seems to show, if you look at Jesus' family Christmas tree, that those are the kind of people that he works with are those with imperfections, those with flaws, those with shortcomings. And you probably noticed, if you were paying attention, there was one person I left out, one major person in the family Christmas tree who has many flaws. Anybody notice who that was? David. David. I saved him for last. This is what it says about David. It says, at the time when kings were at war, David stayed home. So he's supposed to be somewhere else. And this is the funny thing about sin is that it is progressive. That's what sin is. It is progressive. It seems to build on top of each other. Um, David was in the wrong spot at the wrong time. And he's looking out his window and he sees Bathsheba. And he sees what he wants. And because he is the king, he took what he wants. And he committed adultery 
right there. And he, adultery in that moment. And as the king, then he starts to lie and he starts to deceive. And, and eventually what he does is he sends Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, to the front of the lines to, be, to fight in war where he knows he will get killed. Basically what David did is he turned into a murderer. Sin progressed into sin, progressed into sin. And what's crazy is David wasn't perfect, right? We all know that. And there were consequences for his actions. There truly were. But he was also known, as many of you know, as a man after God's own heart. In fact, not only that, the number one name in the New Testament that Jesus is associated with is David. The son of David. In fact, the reason that Matthew starts off with a genealogy and this history, which we think, why is that even in there? Is because the number one thing that the Jews would have been looking for is to know this Messiah, this promised Christ, he's got to come from the lineage of David. And so what Matthew does is he strategically in his gospel gets that out right away because he knows that's the number one question that the Jewish people would have been asking. And so Jesus, or even though David did these horrendous things, right? More horrendous than we have done. He is still associated with the name of Jesus. And perhaps you think because of the things that you have done that you can't be associated with God or associated with the church or associated with his people. I'm just here to tell you that that isn't the case. That isn't the case. Uh, The Psalms often are a Twitter account for David. Um, he will write his feelings of what's going on. And so here's a tweet from David out of Psalm 32, 5. It says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now, maybe you've read the Bible and you've read these words before, sin, transgressions, iniquities. But I don't know if you know this. Did you know that they're not the same thing? They don't mean the same thing. He's not just saying sin, sin, sin. Here's what they are. I'll break it down for you. Sin is basically this. It's when a person makes a mistake. It's like a, oops, my bad, didn't mean to. When we first moved into our house where we're living at right now, I was driving to church one of the first Sundays, and I didn't realize it was 45, and I was going to happy 65 right down the road, right? And I got pulled over, and the cop says, you know how fast you're going? I'm like, yeah, I was going a little bit around 60. And he's like, well, did you know it's 45? And I'm like, I did not. I'm like, oops, my bad, right? Beautifully, he did not give me a ticket that day. He did not give me a ticket. That is a sin. That is like a mistake. Now, if I continue to drive, as sometimes I actually do at 65 miles an hour down the road, that's what's considered to be a transgression. Why are you woeing at me, babe? You're in the car. You're in the car. Yes, all right. <laughs> if, you, uh, if you're driving down, I know at that point in time that that's wrong, and that's what a transgression is. It is when a person knows the law and willfully disobeys it, right? Friends, if we're honest, we transgress. We do. And that's taxes. You're writing up your taxes. And we know what the real law is, and yet kind of fudge just a little bit. Or you know you shouldn't text that person, but yet you text that person. Iniquity is completely different. Iniquity is, in, is a particular twist or bend towards evil, right? This is as if there's something inside of us that wants to do bad. 
There's something inside of us that wants to do bad. And friends, I'm not trying to shove you down and I'm not trying to shove your sin into your face, but this problem, it's bigger than we think and we've spent so much time trying to manage our sins, trying to cover them up. And that is the point of Christmas, is that we don't have to. Isn't that amazing? We don't have to. And we like to dismiss our sin. We like to minimize it. And so we call it things like stuff. I love that. Like I have friends who are like, yeah, man, I'm just going through a lot of stuff right now. There's a lot of stuff that's happening at work. And I was with this girl and we did some stuff and now she's pregnant. And it's like, <laughs> that's a little more than stuff, right? And we try to minimize it. But maybe if we called it what it is, God could do what God does and cover it up with his blood. If we called it what it was, he could cover it up. Why do we feel, this is nuts, why do we feel that we have to diminish or cover up our flaws and our shortcomings when Jesus' family tree, right, right there in the beginning of Matthew, clearly shows us that God still uses flawed people? We don't have to do that. And so I want to invite Leah to come on up. She's going she's gonna to play a little bit behind me as, I'm, as I continue to speak. But here's what's so amazing about the baby who came in a manger. What's nuts is he grew up. And unlike my family and your family, he lived a perfect life. A perfect life. And here's what it says in Isaiah. It said he was pierced for our transgressions. Friends, I'm not here to beat you up over your sin because some guy was already beat up for your sin and his name was Jesus. How amazing is that? He was crushed for our iniquities. So that, that part of you that wants to do bad, that part of you that bends towards evil, he was crushed for that, for me and for you. And upon him, was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. We are healed. Maybe you can't sleep at night because you're spending so much time rehearsing in your mind what happened back there, what was done in the past, what you have done, all the things you've done. Maybe, just maybe, I'll give you this. When you can't sleep at night, instead of thinking all the things that you have done in the past, maybe you start to think of all the things he has done for you. Change your focus there just slightly. The Bible says God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not while we were singing oceans, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In fact, if you study that verse even more thoroughly, find out it was not only while we were still sinners, it's while we were still actually sinning and enjoying it is what that verse actually means. We still had a smile on our face. We were still ignoring the cross. That, in that moment, that is when Christ died for us on our worst day, on our darkest day, right? Not on a Sunday morning, not on our Sunday best, but on perhaps on Saturday night, on our worst day that we wanted nobody to be able to see. I've been having a conversation with a friend of mine who was a student for a long time. We've been getting together for lunch. It's been so great. When I sat down with him and I saw him after like 10 years 
I looked in his eyes and he looked different than I remember him. When I remember him, he was this kid full of life. He had so much life inside of him, so much promise, so much opportunity, top of his class, stud of a man. And then I asked him, he, as we sat down, we're eating pizza, and he's telling me what went on. And he says, I went to school. And things, or let's just say stuff, happened. And all of a sudden, I lost my girlfriend. I lost my scholarships. I lost all this stuff, all the things that I had. And I ended up back home sleeping on my parents' floor. And I could tell in his eyes, he's asking this question, can God still use me. And maybe, maybe you're here and you're wondering if anything can be said from the stage that would help you to get up off the floor in your life and move forward in hope and to walk in hope. Some of us here have lost hope. And what I'm trying to let us, what I want to say here is you don't have to look any further than Matthew chapter 1. You don't have to look any further than the genealogy of Jesus to see that there is hope. Some of us has lost hope, but check out this passage. I have been excited to read this. Look at this. This is the most promising passage on the planet. Paul is quoting the prophet Isaiah, and here's what he says. He says, the heir to David's throne. All right, so there's David. The son of David, David, Jesus, the son of David, despite all his flaws, there's David. The heir to David's throne will come. That's Jesus. How will he come? In a manger, as a baby, way nobody expected. And he will rule over the Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? Guys, that's us. That is us. We are the Gentiles. And they will place their, what? Hope on him. And Paul continues, and he says, I pray that God, the source of, um, oh, hope. There it is. Hope. Will find you completely with joy and peace because you, catch this, trust in him. Then, so then after we've placed our trust in him, then you will overflow with calm hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. That is a promise. That is beautiful. That is worth getting excited, excited over. That no matter what has happened, no matter what you have done, no matter what you have said, no matter what you smoke, injected, whatever you drank, whatever you have back here that you think dictates what's happening up here, whatever that is, what Jesus is saying, what the Bible is saying, what the message is saying is there is hope. There is hope. Hope. Your past doesn't disqualify you from the hope that Jesus offers. Your past doesn't disqualify you from the hope that Jesus offers. As long as Jesus is in the equation, as long as his name is somewhere around where you're at, that you have a relationship with him, there's hope. There's truly, truly hope. Friends, there's a difference between a hope and a wish. There's a difference there. The difference is, as a wish is this, it's a desire for something improbable or unlikely. So that's like the Disney dream, right? That's like genies. That's wish upon a star. That's close your eyes, 
and blow out the candles. That's what a wish is. A wish is really hoping in something that we all know is not going to come true. But hope is a desire backed by reasonable confidence. We have four accounts of the life of Jesus. We have historical documents that prove his existence and prove he is who he says he is. We have reasonable hope. And because of that and because of what he's done and because of what he said, I choose hope. And if you haven't chosen hope or you're not choosing hope in this season and in this time, come on. Whatever you did back there does not disqualify you from Jesus offering it to you today and tomorrow and all the way into eternity. He takes that thing that happened in the past and he washes it away. It's gone. Yes, you'll remember it. I get that. But it doesn't define who you are because Jesus defines who you are. I want to conclude with this passage. I don't very often read from the Message Bible, but when I read this translation, I literally, the words jumped off the page and it just, it spoke to me. So I'll conclude with this. It's Peter quoting King David. David again, here he is. David said, I saw God before me for all time, for eternity. Nothing can shake me. He's right by my side. I'm glad from the inside out, ecstatic. And then here's the line that blew off the page to me. I've pitched my tent in the land of hope. I have pitched my tent in the land of hope. That's where I want my tent to be, in the land of hope, where hope overflows. And that's wherever Jesus is. And so I invite all of us, my prayer is simply this today, if you have not pitched your land in the land or your tent in the land of hope, I ask and I pray that you do. And if you forgot, step right back in. It's always there. Jesus is always offering hope to us. And if you want and you don't have a relationship with Jesus or you have questions, take your card, write it down, say, I have questions about Jesus or I want to pitch my tent in the land of hope. Write that down on there so we can connect with you, that we can talk with you. But today, the simple message is this. Is it's very, very simple. There's hope. No matter what you have done in your past, no matter what is behind you, because of Jesus, because of what he's done, because of who he is and how much he loves you, no matter what has happened, there's hope. Because Jesus is there. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.